Ephesians chapter 1, we are continuing in our series called Identity Issues, God's Glory in Us Through Christ's Work for Us, and we're just studying one verse a week of the first 14 verses of Ephesians, and we're dealing with the deep issue of who we are, who we perceive ourselves to be, the experiences we have in life that try to inform that and shape that and dictate that and malign that and pervert that and uh, waylay that and hijack that. And, And then the wonderful truth of who Christ is and what he has done for us that we might have a truer identity in the love of God. So, and this forms a different way of thinking and feeling and living and behaving in the world. And that's what we're trying to discover as we look at these verses. We're doing this with our other campuses. We, of course, are one church in three locations. So we want to show our love this morning for the Ventura and Carpinteria campuses. They're watching. Let's give them love. And we are looking at verse 6 of Ephesians 1 this morning. We'll start reading in verse 3 for a little bit of context. We'll read through verse 6. We'll pray and we'll get into it. Ephesians 1 verse 3, Paul the Apostle writes and says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us, And chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure. And then today's verse. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. Lord, thank you for these wonderful truths that are before us. Thank you that God, you so love the world that you sent your only begotten son. Thank you that this passage tells us we are chosen in him. That we're united with him. That we've been brought to you through him. And Lord, we want to say together as a church this morning that it's all about Jesus. We want to take a couple hours here and and stop being about us for a little while. And make it all about Christ, who he is, his glory, his work, his purposes in the world, and our identity in light of that. And so we ask this morning, Lord, that you would speak to us. Lord, I know in my own life I've been overly obsessed with self this week. And we thank you for Sundays where we can gather together and hear about a greater obsession. Something better to think about and muse upon and rejoice in, which is Christ crucified for us. And so Holy Spirit, cause Christ this morning to become our new obsession, that our lives would be realigned, rightly directed, and we might learn to enjoy you, God, and all that you've done for us. Speak to us in the deep issues of our heart. And Lord, I'm... I was only a little bit kidding earlier. I'm, I'm not fully prepared. And so I just ask for your grace to say what you would have me say. And thank you, Lord, that my adequacy comes from you and that these truths are your truths and not mine, that this is your word and not man's word. And so we want to hear from you, God. We are your people, the sheep of your hand. Speak to us, pastor us, shepherd us, lead us where you would have us be for your glory. Pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, the title of this message is Be Graced. Be Graced. And that's a little concept. It's not actually a word. It's a made-up word. But it's a concept that we get from the Greek grammar of this sentence. And I'll, I'll try to explain that in the coming moments. When Jesus began his ministry, about the age of 30 or so, he was baptized in the Jordan River by John, the baptizer. And he was baptized in order to show his identity with, or rather that he was identifying with, sinful humanity. Right? Identifying with sinful humanity at the beginning of his ministry. And just after Jesus was baptized, we're told in the third chapter of Matthew, that the sky opened up and Jesus saw the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And then it says there came a voice from heaven where the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The heavens opened up. God spoke and said, this is my beloved son. That moment changed everything. And yet that moment was greatly challenged, tried, tempted by Satan. Immediately after his baptism, Jesus experienced a temptation, Matthew chapter 4. And it's interesting the way that Satan tempted Jesus. He didn't tempt him with regards to his identity. His identity had just been proclaimed from heaven. This is my beloved son. Right? And and positively so, with affirmation. In whom I am well pleased. What Satan didn't do was challenge his identity, per se. He, He didn't say, you're not actually... The son of God, Jesus. Those words never came from the mouth of Satan. Rather, in Matthew 4, he says, if you are the son of God. He he wasn't attacking the fact of Christ's identity. Rather, he was tempting Jesus to have to prove his identity. If you are the son of God, then turn these stones to bread. If you are the son of God, then throw yourself off to this high pinnacle of the temple. And then he, of course, took him up to a high place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And said, and if you bow down and worship me, you can have all of these. So Christ's identity is proclaimed by the father. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Satan comes along. And he can't touch his identity. He doesn't say you're not the son of God. Rather, he tries to get Jesus to prove it. If you're the son of God, then turn these stones to bread. In other words, do something of of worth. Do something of value. Turn these stones to bread. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down off the temple and, and survive it. In other words, do something great. Big deal, you're the son of God. Do do something about it. Do something of value. Do something great. And by the way, if you bow down and worship me, you can have all the kingdoms of the earth. Acquire something more. Now you see, our identity has been made secure in the love of the Father. When we put our faith in Christ, we are united 
with him. So that what is true about him becomes true about us. So that we become sons and daughters of God. Not in the sense that we are deity, of course. We're not. But in the sense that the Father loves us as sons and daughters. And has adopted us into his family. And we have become his very own. And he says to us, because Christ lived a perfect life because we couldn't. And died on the cross so that we won it. And rose from the dead that we might have new life. The Father says to us, I am well pleased with you. As verse 4 says, we're now spotless and blameless in his eyes. So our, our, our identity is secure. It's as if the heavens have opened up and God has said to you, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased because of Christ and what he's done for us. Now, Satan can't touch that. Satan can't shake that. There's nothing he could do to come along and say, well, no, you're not. You see, what he tries to do is get us in the area of our associated actions. Okay, you're, you're a child of the Most High. Well, do something of value. What have you done of value? What have you contributed? What have you achieved? Turn these stones to bread. Do something great. Throw yourself down. Show us something awesome. You're, you haven't done anything. And acquire, get more for yourself. You see, the way that we try to build identity apart from Jesus Christ is by doing something great. Something of value. Acquiring more for ourselves. We're, we're constantly evaluating ourselves and others apart from Christ in the realm of what we can do and what we can own. What we can do and what we can own. That's why as a culture, we assign so much value to labels, right? That's why we buy a certain pair of jeans rather than just getting those jeans. I'm actually wearing those jeans. These are just Levi's. I've worn them on Sunday for the last six weeks. But there's other areas in my life where, where we together, we buy labels. Why? Because labels speak of a certain identity. It's not that the quality of the thing is necessarily that much greater. But it says something. Right? If you pull up in a Mercedes, that says something different than if you pull up in a Ford. Doesn't it? Or, or a VW. It just says something different. I'm not saying that it's bad to have a Mercedes. In fact, I would love to have that red one parked right outside the building here. <laughs> just kidding. But we, we have this thing in life where, where we try to assign value to self and others by achieving something great, getting something more for ourselves. It's never about the core of who we are. It's always about what we can do or what we can own. But you see, our identity isn't based on that. Our identity isn't based on what we can do because the Bible declares that what we can do is only bad. There are none who are good. All have gone astray, Scripture declares. And it's, it's not based on what we could own because as Scripture also declares, it's all going to burn. You can't take it with you. Rather, true and lasting identity is based on what God has done for us in Christ and what God has given us in Christ. 
so that we can begin to understand ourselves in light of that baptismal day of Christ where the Father said, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. If the Father is speaking over you today, you are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the fact of life is that Satan cannot undo that. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I hold you in my hand. My sheep hear my voice and they know it. And I hold you in my hand. And the Father who is greater than all holds you in his hand. And no one can snatch you from the Father's hand. You see, there's one thing in this life that is secure. It is who you are in Christ. It's never about do something of value, do something of great, get something more for yourself. But that is the area where Satan will try to tempt us. And so we fall into the trap of, we fall prey to trying to prove our identity. We do it with one another. And we fall into the trap of trying to do it before God. Because if you're anything like me, you might have had a fun week. But you had a week where more than ever you, you realize your unworthiness, your wickedness, your sinfulness. And you said, if God is ever going to say to me, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, it's got to be because of Christ and not because of me. So that when Satan tries to tempt us to prove our worth, our value, what we have, all we need to say is that the cross of Christ and his resurrection from the dead stand as the ultimate and only proof of my identity. I am the beloved of God. Because I've put my faith in Christ. And that's what this verse says. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. Literally in the Greek, who, who are in the beloved. So my beloved son. We are in the beloved. And the reason that we're in the beloved is that truth from last week that we have been predestined for adoption. So that life in the beloved, those who belong to the Son, Jesus Christ, are able to say this in the trials, temptations, woes, and difficulties of life. That what I have in Christ is greater than what is happening to me in this world. The promises I have in Christ, the glory I have in Christ, the position I have in Christ, the blessings I have in Christ, the forgiveness, the redemption, the love of God realize that I have in Christ are greater than, more valuable than, more important than what is happening to me in this life. Because the truth is, in this world you will have trouble. But Christ said, take heart, I have overcome the world. And what Christ has done for us is greater than the difficulty that we're experiencing in this life. So it says here, we praise God for his glorious grace. We praise God for his glorious grace. The idea of grace, charis, in the Greek, in the Greek culture of the time, it was really the idea of that which invokes beauty. That which brings joy. 
It would come in the New Testament to denote the unmerited favor of God, the undeserved kindness of God toward us. But in that culture, the profound idea was that which causes joy, delight, beauty, charm. And what we realize by being adopted into God's own family and belonging to the beloved son is this. That in the New Testament, grace is not something merely God gives us, but grace is a mean by which God gives us himself. Grace is God saying to thieves and sinners and criminals. Grace is the judge of the universe saying, come, sit down with me, have a meal in my home. Grace is the bringing of those who do not belong to where they should not be to receive what they do not deserve. Which is ownership of God, belonging to God, fellowship with God. Being with God in this world. So that what grace brings us is joy because of the presence of God. The psalmist would write in Psalm 16 verse 1, verse 11, excuse me. You will show me the way of life. Grant to me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. He would say in chapter 4, verse 7 of the Psalms, you have given me greater joy than those who have abundant harvest of grain and new wine. He would say in Psalm 9, 2, I will be filled with joy because of you. I will sing praises to your name, O Most High. He would say in Psalm 30, verse 11, you have turned my mourning into joyful dancing. You have taken away my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy. He would say in Psalm 28, verse 7, The Lord is my strength and shield. I trust him with all my heart. He helps me. And my heart is filled with joy. I burst out in songs of thanksgiving. So that Paul the apostle writes here, We praise God. For the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his beloved son. We praise God in light of what God has done. Remember verse 5, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. In light of what God wanted to do for God's purposes... What brought God joy was you reconciled to him. Your sinfulness removed that you might be restored to relationship. This is what he did and it brought him great joy. In light of that, the text says, in accordance with this word so in the Greek, because of that, we praise him for his glorious grace. Now, I've been thinking about that word praise differently this week because, of course, it means to speak well of. That's a general meaning, right? You can, um, to praise someone is to speak well of them. You, you praise your kids. You speak well of them. You praise your spouse. You speak well of them. You praise God. You, you speak well of God. We come here. We do that. We, we sing together songs to God. But praise also has this idea in it of applauding. Applauding. So that the idea behind the text is in light of what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ, having loved us and chose us from before the foundations of the world, because it gave him great pleasure, in light of that, we applaud the glorious grace of God. 
Here's what I don't mean. I, I don't mean the way that we do it, which I love to do, and I, I can't wait to do it soon. The, the happy clappy thing, praising God. We do that here. We're kind of a happy clappy church. But that's not what I'm meaning. I'm meaning this. This week I struggled with feelings of rejection that I was experiencing from someone close to me. And then the experience of of rejecting them in return. Feelings of, of bitterness in my heart, hurt, anger, malice, wrath disappointment, all all these things that we experience in relationships. And and what I had to do was was begin to coach my way through that every morning because when I woke up, it was right there. Those thoughts were there. That sort of obsession was there. To obsess means to preoccupy and fill the mind continually, intrusively to a troubling extent. And so trying to coach myself through this, I said, how can I, in my thoughts, how can I today begin to applaud God for the glorious grace that he's given me? Instead of obsessing about the wrong that's been done to me, instead of obsessing about the wrong that I want to do in retribution to others, how can I begin to applaud the grace of God? the glorious grace of God in my life. And man, that that was difficult because I'm thinking that to applaud the grace of God would mean to live in consonance with it. Because when we get to chapter four, verse one, Paul's gonna say, walk in a manner worthy of this calling that we have because of grace. And so because the grace of God has brought me undeserved forgiveness, I started to think that what, what, what it means in this instance to applaud is to forgive when I, I don't want to forgive. To release someone when I, I, I want to hold them captive to my anger. To bless when I honestly want to curse. Because I deserve to curse and I've been blessed because Jesus was cursed in my place. Because I deserve to be judged and I've been forgiven because Jesus was judged in my place. Because I deserve to be condemned and confined to hell for eternity. But I've been set free and given the promise of eternity because Jesus was condemned in my place. How do we in our daily lives praise God for the glorious grace he's given? How do we begin to applaud the glorious grace of God. And so then, as I was struggling with rejection and rejecting it, I began to feel incredibly guilty about it. So again, I started to ask, because I was ruminating on the sex, how do I applaud the grace of God in the midst of feeling guilty? It's to think rightly. It's to live consonantly with. It's to say, yes, I'm guilty, but I've been declared innocent because Christ was condemned for me. And I'm not only innocent, I've been declared righteous because Christ lived the perfect life on my behalf so that his righteousness has been given to me as I'm united to him in faith. So that my day doesn't have to be ruled with guilt. It can be ruled with grace to applaud the grace of God. So that my day doesn't have to be ruled with a sense of rejection 
but with acceptance because I've been accepted by God. And so that my nights don't have to be ruled with a desire for vindictive vengeance because I myself have been set free in my guilt. And even as I walked to the pulpit this morning, struggling to rightly applaud the grace of God in my life. Because I think this is what creation is supposed to do. Because the prophet Isaiah tells us that when Christ returns to renew all things, that the trees will applaud. You ever read that in Isaiah? That the trees will applaud when Christ comes back in the renewal of all things. You see, salvation is not merely about us. Predestination is not merely about us. Salvation and predestination have to do with God's purposes and plans in the world for the world. And that God is in the process of renewing all things and making all things new. So that we can stand with creation and applause the glorious grace of God. Notice it is called the glorious grace. That word glory in the Greek is the word doxa. And and it's the idea of splendor, brilliance, something that attracts the gaze. And whenever it's used in the New Testament, it's talking about God. It's, It's the glory of God and God's glorious grace here. Something that attracts the gaze. Here, here's the battle that I've had this week. To be obsessed with the disappointments of this life or to let my gaze be attracted to the splendor of God's grace. So we praise God's glorious grace, his dazzling grace, his grace that is attractive to the eye. Because what we are is obsessive people, yes? We're all obsessing about something. If you're not, man, you're blessed. I wish I had your brain. I wish I had your heart. But, but, but we're obsessive people. And the hope for us who belong to Christ is that we can begin to obsess with God's grace. Remember, obsess means to preoccupy and fill the mind continually, intrusively, to a troubling extent. So that instead of being troubled by the wrongs that were done to me, instead of being troubled by my vindictive desire for vengeance, I can be troubled by the grace of God, which has declared me innocent and the beloved son of God. You know what I mean by troubled? Troubled. I mean obsessed, fascinated. A.W. Tozer said this, that true worship is to be morally fascinated. It's to be charmed and enchanted with who God is. This is what this text is trying to get us to do. In light of what God has done, that he loved you before the foundations of the world, adopted you into his own family through Christ, has chose you to be his very own. We praise, applaud the glorious, dazzling grace of God. And we obsess over his grace rather than self. I want you to notice what it says here. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. Poured out on, singular word in the Greek. It's actually the verbal form of the noun grace. Literally, it it would literally read this. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has graced us with. 
Listen to the redundancy. We praise God for the glorious grace he has graced us with. The scholar F.F. Bruce translates that Greek verb, be graced. So we praise God for the glorious grace he's be graced us with. He's bestowed upon us, the New American Standard says. He's poured out on us, the New Living Translation says. So that when I'm beginning to obsess with the difficulties of life, when I'm beginning to obsess with myself and my own rejection and my own wants and my own evil, instead I can realize I've been graced with grace. I've been be-graced. Contrast that to the concept of being bewitched. To be bewitched is to have a spell cast on. To gain control over, to enchant. That's what the disappointments in this life do with us. That's what anger and bitterness do to us, is is that they bewitch us. They gain control over us. Which is why Paul the Apostle said, "Don't, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Thereby giving the devil an opportunity. That's why when the kingdom of God was announced by Christ, the first thing he said was repent for the kingdom of God is near you. Because what is brought to us in Christ is grace upon grace. Glorious grace with which we have been graced. Dazzling grace with which we have been be graced. So that because we're accepted in the Son, we can do away with rejection of self and rejection of others. We praise God for the glorious grace by which we have been graced. And so we ponder in life, how do I applaud this? So that when we feel dirty, we begin to applaud, obsess upon the grace of God that has made us holy. When we feel unworthy, we begin to applaud, obsess upon, think about, preach to ourselves, explain to ourselves the grace of God by which we've been made worthy. So that when we feel discontent, when we feel the temptation to do something of value, do something great, get something more for yourself, we can think upon, preach to ourselves, explain to ourselves, be obsessed with the fact that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. So that when we suffer under the weight of rejection and the temptation to reject, we can rejoice in the fact that by grace we are actually the elect. So that when we feel abandoned, we can rejoice in the fact that we've been adopted. You see, but there's a reason why Paul uses the analogy, the the metaphor of adoption here. As I said last week, he's probably not talking about Jewish culture because adoption wasn't real big in Jewish culture, but it was big in Roman culture, which is a lot of the backdrop for the New Testament. And a lot of the adoptions that happen in Roman culture were were not the sorts that happens with us. Generally, we see orphans and we're moved to adopt them, and that's beautiful and wonderful and representative of God's heart for the fatherless and, and good. But a lot of times what it was was the headhold or the head of a household, excuse me, had no heir. And so he would often adopt a male 18 years or older for the sole purpose 
that this male would now be responsible to maintain the property and the ownership of the family. So that this man would become a steward of the legacy of the family. It wasn't merely about rescue. It was about legacy. And you see, we have been extended the grace of God. Therefore, we've been adopted. But, but it's not merely about our need. We've become stewards of God's grace in the world. Because God is in the process of renewing all people, all of creation, all of our relationships through grace. And what happened to this 18-year-old son when he was adopted is he no longer had any allegiance to his natural father. Scripture declares that prior to our being adopted through Christ, we were sons of wrath. We were allegiant to the enemy. John 8, Jesus said to the Jewish leaders, your father is the devil and you do the works of your father. By the fact that we have been adopted by grace, we have no allegiance to Satan anymore. That is why Satan in the temptation of Jesus could not touch his identity. He had to make it about what he did or didn't do and owned or didn't own. You have been adopted by grace so that that is the most true and secure thing about you. You have no allegiance to the enemy anymore. That has been broken by the cross of Jesus Christ. The enemy and sin are no longer master over you. So that what is most true about us is that we have been graced with grace. His glorious grace has been poured out on us in order that we might continue the family legacy, become stewards of grace in the world. You see, we have this proclivity to be intensely selfish and to rejoice in and enjoy the grace of God for ourselves, but not extend it to others. And what does our identity mean as be graced if we don't be grace one another? And this is what the Christian community is called to do, to be grace one another by embracing each other in our failures, holding each other in our brokenness, praying for each other in the difficulty, encouraging each other toward right living as heirs, as ones who are adopted to continue the legacy of grace and then extending that to the relationships around us. Lord, we ask that you'd help us with that. Lord, I ask that you'd help me with that. It's just so wrong to be called beloved son and have so much difficulty to love others. And so Lord, we pray in our lives that this grace that's been shown to us would become our obsession. That rather than being bewitched by all the failures of our lives, we'd be begraced by belonging to you. Lord, we say together that we need help for this. So we ask the Holy Spirit you'd come.
and you speak to the depths of our hearts where we've allowed ourselves to be bewitched and you minister to us the glorious grace of God that you would change our obsessions that you would teach us to applaud grace and our daily trials and difficulties we thank you Lord that you chose us before the foundation of the world to bring us who don't belong to where we should not be to receive what we do not deserve. Your glorious grace. Dazzle us with it, Lord. Cause it to shape us and form us and change us for your purposes in the world. Pray it in Jesus' name.